The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg, sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. President Trump was sent here to smash conventional norms. In a sense, Bernie Sanders has already won. This is Bloomberg, sound on with Kevin Sir. On Bloomberg 991 and 105.7 FM HD2. Welcome to Sound On. I'm Greg Store in for Kevin Cirilli. We're going to talk impeachment, but first, Kevin has an exclusive interview with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. You were recently traveling in Colombia and you met with Venezuela President Juan Guaido, who's risking his life to meet with world leaders, including yourself, who'll be headed to Davos. Are you hopeful that these world meetings will shift the momentum and continue the momentum against the Maduro regime? You know I am. When I had a chance to meet with him, he is a brave man. He's also a good leader who cares deeply about the Venezuelan people, the same interest that the United States has. And so I do hope as he meets with European leaders when he travels to Davos, they too will see that this is a worthy and noble goal that we're engaged in, restoring democracy. Uh, the, the humanitarian calamity that is Venezuela now, some six million people, by the end of this year, we'll have fled the country in a country the size of oh, 30 million or so, so 20% of the population. This is a staggering humanitarian crisis, one the United States wants to do its best to resolve in a way that can only happen when there are free, fair, democratic elections that lead to the people's choice to be the leader of that country. In Colombia, President Duque at the conference cautioned against the threat of Hezbollah in the region. And you yourself, sir, said that Hezbollah has, quote, found a home in Venezuela. How significant of a role does Hezbollah play in the region? Yeah, too much. And I mentioned it in Venezuela, but in the tri-border area in Brazil, this is, again, an area where Iranian influence, we talk about them as the world's largest state sponsor of terror. We do that intentionally. It's the world's largest. It's not just a Middle East phenomenon. So while when folks think of Hezbollah, they typically think of Syria and Lebanon. Uh, but Hezbollah has now put down roots throughout the globe and in South America. And it's great to see now multiple countries are now having designated Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. It means we can work together to stamp out the security threat in the region. I'm struck by this because even hearing you, what you're saying right now, I mean, to take a step back, an Iranian-backed terrorist organization has found a home in America's backyard. It's... it's uh, it's something we've been talking about for some time. Uh, when, you, when you see uh, the scope and reach of what the Islamic Republic of Iran regime has done, you can't forget they tried to kill someone in the United States of America. Uh, they've conducted assassination campaigns in Europe. This is a global phenomenon. When we say that Iran is the leading destabilizing force in the Middle East and throughout the world, it's because of this terror activity that they have now spread as a cancer all across the globe. This past week, as you've traveled the world, we started in Germany and Berlin, where you met with world leaders, including German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Sure, you talked about Iran, but as you know, Europe has not always 
followed the same strategic route as the United States when it comes to Iran. Did your meetings with European leaders move the needle in that direction at all? Yes, sir. Look, we've been clear. We've had a different view on the right way to proceed to ensure that Iran never gets a nuclear weapon, that their missile program is contained, and that this terror regime we were just talking about is pushed back. Uh, they've never wavered from the shared objective. They've just had a different view about, about how to proceed. But if you've seen what Iran has done even in the past few weeks, right, it's nuclear extortion. They're now threatening to leave the NPT. So I did. We, I talked with my European counterparts while I was there. They have now uh, taken a step under the JCPOA to in, invoke the dispute resolution mechanism. I think not only they, but the world can now see that this rogue regime has no intention of complying with the central tenets of what that agreement contained, and the world must unite to ensure that Iran never has a nuclear weapon. I saw President Macron say that yesterday. I know he means that now we need to work together to achieve so it. So when you say they have no intention, then, then how do you get Tehran to go to the United Nations, to come to the United Nations, to work with the international community, aside from the sanctions and, and the various military response options? Ultimately, the people of Iran will get what they so richly deserve, a regime that behaves in ways that are consistent with the value sets of the Iranian people. In the end, the Iranian people will demand their government. You see it. You see it in the protests. You see it when they walk around American flags that were put down by the Islamic Republic's leadership in an attempt to show they could show pictures of Iranian people walking over American flags. And in fact, people go out of their way not to do that. Uh, this isn't about Iran versus the United States. This is about a regime that has treated its own people terribly. The world can see it. It's a regime that even now the IAE is trying to figure out how nuclear material got to places that the Iranian leadership said it would not be. Uh, and so this is a global risk. President Trump started his remarks uh, the night uh, after uh, an American response by saying Iran will never have a nuclear weapon. It is our primary purpose. Um, but we have a broader set of objectives. So we just want them to behave like a normal nation and re-enter the community of nations. And, and traveling with you all week, I mean, I, I'm struck by just the, the range of, of hotspot issues around the world that are going on. And back home, the only thing that they're talking about is impeachment and the Senate impeachment trial. Did that come up at all in your conversations with world leaders? And has the Senate impeachment trial endangered U.S. interests and reputation around the world? You know, Kevin, it, it hasn't come up today, except where I received a question at a press conference about it, so it and came you, up. And you said you would testify. Uh, I, yeah, I, I've said consistently, if the, the law required me to testify, I, I would do so. Uh, you know, it hasn't come up. It almost never comes up in meetings with my counterparts. There's too many important things going on in the world. America is too close a partner to have with countries in the Caribbean region here in Kingston. Uh, they care about so much that we do. They're such good friends and allies. Uh, they, they see the noise in Washington, but it is not something they would think in the time that we have between us that they would raise. And House Democrats are saying that Rudy Giuliani orchestrated a shadow foreign policy. And can you assure diplomats serving overseas all around the world in dangerous places that that's not the case? Yeah, the foreign policy we were executing then is the same foreign policy we're executing today with respect to Ukraine. It's an important country. It sits at this crossroads. It's under enormous pressure from Russia. President Trump has taken actions to counter Russia that President Obama refused to take. Uh, we've provided defensive systems for the Ukrainian people so that they can defend themselves. We've supported this new leader, uh, uh, President Zelensky, in his efforts to stamp out corruption and to build his democracy. We're continuing to do that. Uh, our policy with re respect to Ukraine has been 
set on the fundamental principles of uh, reducing the footprint of corruption and helping the Ukrainian people build up a democracy while under threat from the Russians in the east and southeast. You've said that you look forward to going there, that you have other uh, issues that you want to discuss with them. Or is that still the case? Yeah, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there before too long. I, I, I had a trip planned, and then we had an issue arise in the Middle East that had to attend to. Uh, while that issue is not behind us, there's still a lot of work to do there. I'll get to Ukraine before To take too a step long. back, wh why should Americans care about what happens in the Ukraine? What's the broader theme here? Who's explaining to the American people why U.S.-Ukraine policy matters to the average American? Yeah. So Ukraine sits at the edge between democracy and tyranny in the easternmost parts of Europe. Uh, it's a nation that gave up its nuclear weapons at the end of the uh, Cold War. And America made a commitment that said we would assist them with uh, a number of things so that they could still be a secure, sovereign nation. Uh, we care about democracy everywhere. They're a huge trading partner for the United States of America. America has a number of interests with respect to Ukraine, and I think the level of resources we've committed there reflects that level of interest. That was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo speaking with Bloomberg's Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Greg Storr, in for Kevin Cirilli. Day two of the Senate impeachment trial of President Trump and Democrats are making their case for removing him from office. House manager Adam Schiff says there's no dispute about what Trump did when he tried to get Ukraine to announce an investigation related to the Biden family. And this is why you will hear the president's lawyers make the astounding claim that you can't impeach a president for abusing the powers of his office because they can't seriously contest that that is exactly, exactly what he did. My guest is Bob Barr. He is a former prosecutor, a former Republican congressman from Georgia, and was an impeachment manager uh, during the impeachment trial of President Bill Clinton. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us on Sound On. Well, it's my pleasure, Greg. Good to be with you and your listeners. So uh, I, I want to give you a chance to respond to what Congressman Schiff said and some other things going on in, in the trial. But before we get into the pros and cons of this, could you just take us back to 1999? Um, somewhat of a similar situation in that there was a, a broad expectation going in that the president was going to be acquitted. I would really like to know what were your hopes and expectations as you walked over there for the first time to, to start making the case for removing him? The first thing we were interested in being able to do back in February of 1999 was to be able to present a robust case explaining the articles of impeachment that the House had passed just a couple of weeks before. Uh, unlike the current uh, situation, of course, we were bringing over uh, a robust uh, uh, process that uh, laid out commission of crimes before the uh, before the Senate, uh, unlike now. Uh, we had uh, procedurally, we were facing uh, a similar situation that the House managers are facing now, not exactly the same, but the Senate rules at the time, that is in 1999, uh, allowed no live witnesses and limited very severely the body of evidence that we could present to only that evidence that was already in the public record as a result of the House impeachment procedures. So 
uh, turning a little bit to the to the Trump trial. So people on the left say, uh, uh, when you all were were uh, prosecuting Bill Clinton, trying to have him removed from office, the allegations were that he he lied under oath, but uh, which, which is a bad thing, but not something that amounted to any sort of abuse of the presidency. Nothing that advantaged him uh, politically uh, in quite the same way. And and here we have Adam Schiff. And others on the House impeachment managers saying Donald Trump is trying to cheat in the next election, uh, among other things, by withholding military aid from a country that badly needed it. Why is it so clear to you that Bill Clinton should have been convicted, but not Donald Trump? First and foremost is that we in 1999 were proceeding pursuant to uh, articles of impeachment that expressly did what the Constitution says is necessary to impeach and remove a president. That is to uh, show that the president uh, violated uh, either bribery or treason, committed those uh, one of those two offenses, or committed other high crimes and misdemeanors. In other words, there has to be a crime at the center or at the foundation of the impeachment of a president, not just any crime, but a high crime that is a serious crime. We believed and laid out the evidence in the House impeachment proceedings before the House Judiciary Committee in, uh, in late 1998 that uh, perjury uh, is a serious crime under federal law, and we showed examples of that. We also established that the president engaged in a pattern of acts that were intended to obstruct justice, that is, obstruct people from testifying truthfully in judicial proceedings. Obstruction of justice is a serious federal crime. Perjury is also. And that was the basis for the impeachment articles in 1998. So, so Congressman, there are an awful lot of people who disagree with you about that point about it having to be a crime. Uh, at the time, one of the things they say is that at the time uh, the Constitution was, was ratified, there, there weren't any federal crimes. There were only state crimes. And they point to things like Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 65 defining high crimes and misdemeanors as being those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. Um, shouldn't that sort of thing be, doesn't it make sense that that sort of thing would be something that we could remove a president from office for? What Alexander Hamilton was talking about uh, certainly makes sense, but it has to be looked at within the context of the article, the language itself. Uh, that is, crimes, criminal behavior. And uh, the founders, uh, the framers of our Constitution, expressly rejected the notion that simply uh, maladministration, which was one of the terms that had been proposed, uh, should be the basis for an impeachment. So the framers looked very carefully and considered very carefully whether some sort of vague or amorphous maladministration or misadministration by a president should be the grounds for an impeachment and opted for a far more concise uh, definition of an impeachable offense, which is a serious crime. As you know, a big issue in this trial is going to be witnesses. Uh, we have not heard from some of the people with the most direct evidence of what the, the president did. So John Bolton, Mick Mulvaney, Mike Pompeo, who we heard earlier say that he would testify if, if required to do so by the law. Um, 
the reason they didn't testify uh, was was at least in large part because the president wouldn't let them testify on the House side. We have about a minute here. Um, you know, why shouldn't those people uh, give us their evidence so that we know exactly what the president did? Primarily because the House failed in its responsibility to uh, produce a full record in the House. The House could have subpoenaed John Bolton. They did not. They could have subpoenaed these other individuals. And certainly if objections were raised, as they were by the administration, the House could have taken those to court. Uh, and a, uh, any judge that uh, would take a case like that would certainly expedite it. The House either didn't want to take the time to do so or simply didn't want the testimony. But the House failed in its responsibility to exhaust every opportunity to get those uh, people uh, to testify. I, w- I want to thank our guest. That's former Republican Congressman Bob Barr. He was one of the House impeachment managers during the uh, impeachment trial of, of uh, President Bill Clinton back in 1999. Congressman, thank you for joining us here on Sound On. Uh, I w- will point out there is a new CNN poll that, that has just come out saying 69% of people uh, think a tri- the trial should include testimony from new witnesses. You're listening to Sound On. I'm Greg Storr. This is Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Greg Storr, in for Kevin Cirilli. Last night in the impeachment trial of Donald Trump, his lawyer, Jay Sekulow, said Democrats are trying to have the president removed from office simply because they dislike him. Why are we here? Are we here because of a phone call? Or are we here before this great body? Because since the president was sworn into office, there was a desire to see him removed. With me here in the Bloomberg 99.1 studio is Bloomberg News congressional editor Anna Edgerton. She burned the midnight oil last night along with Jay Sekulow and a cast of others. Uh, Anna, thanks for being here. Um, let's start with the, the atmospherics of all this. What's, what's the, the tenor of this whole discussion been in the Senate? Yeah, it's been really interesting to watch because it's an institutional story, but it's also kind of a human story. You know, you have these personalities interacting and um, some very human interactions going on on the Senate floor. Um, Adam Schiff has been the lead impeachment manager for the House Democrats, and he's done a really good job of presenting a very humble case, um, also trying to appeal to the grandeur of the Senate and making it clear that he is just there to present the House's the House's case, the evidence that they found, and really call on senators to do the constitutional duty. So he has said, you know, reminded senators that the Founding Fathers gave the Senate the ability to try impeachment cases because there's no other body that would be, that would have the same self-confidence, the same kind of gravitas to to try such a um, a serious um, allegation and possibly remove a president from office. 
they, we've also seen some very matter-of-fact presentations from the other House impeachment managers just kind of slogging through all of the evidence that the House has to protect their case. We did see a few fireworks, um, especially with uh, the presentation at about 1 o'clock in the morning <laughs> <laughs> from Jerry Nadler, the House Judiciary Com- Chairman. Uh, yeah, around that time, the Chief Justice John Roberts gave each side a bit of a talking to. Let's listen to what the Chief Justice had to say. I think it is appropriate at this point for me to admonish uh, both the House managers and the President's counsel in equal terms uh, to remember that they are addressing the world's greatest deliberative body. One reason it has earned that title is because its members avoid speaking in a manner and using language that is not conducive to civil discourse. Anna, what led the Chief Justice to, to say that? <laughs> yeah, that was, um, there was kind of an exchange between Cipollone, um, Pat Cipollone, the lead White House counsel, and Judiciary Chairman uh, Jerry Nadler, in which they had each kind of accused each other of misrepresenting the truth. And Nadler even went so far as to say that um, Cipollone had been sent there to lie to senators. And, um, you know, they did get this reaction from the Chief Justice. He kind of tried to make it a light moment with some uh, historical references to, um, uh, you know, turn-of-the-century profanity. But um, it, <laughs> it, oh. it, the turn-of-the-century profanity is probably something we could say on the radio here. Yeah, what was it, like petty? petty Pettifogging, I believe, was the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, was, that was a new one for me. Um, but, you know, overall, the, the, the tenor was pretty respectful, you know, pretty, you know, just laying out their cases back and forth. You know, that was a moment of tension. They'd been going for 11 hours and um, people were really ready to be done at that point. Did, did I just see that Gerald Nadler made some sort of an apology or a, a pseudo apology? Uh, for- I mean, he kind of like recognized the senators and the chief justices for being there so late and said that he appreciated that. But it definitely wasn't a moment. He wasn't being very contrite. He was... Uh, not not a full-fledged apology. Okay, let's let's turn a little more to the substance. Democrats have the floor today, uh, and they will uh, for the next couple of days. What what are they saying, and what are they trying to accomplish in their opening statements? Yeah, this is their first day of three to use their 24 hours to present the House's case, and this is really an important moment for them because they have to use this to talk not just to the senators in the room, but also to folks back home who are watching this on TV, you know, maybe tuning in to hear this evidence for the first time. And you can tell that they've been very prepared. They have uh, prepared speeches. They have slides. They have videos of witness testimony from the House hearings and have really done a methodical job of marching through the allegations on the table, the president's actions regarding Ukraine, the concern of his subordinates, and even introducing some new evidence that um, came out since the House impeached the president on December 18th. Uh, an associate of Rudy Giuliani's, uh, Lev Parnas, uh, turned over some documents to the House, and one of those um, was a letter from Rudy Giuliani to the president of Ukraine seeking a, a private meeting kind of on behalf of the president. And that was referenced today in the uh, by Zoe Lofgren, one of the impeachment managers. Um, so, you know, they're, they're going through kind of their whole arsenal, 
taking their time to do it, and also kind of making a historical appeal to senators to really um, take this seriously and make sure that they are kind of digesting the case before them. So, so much of this debate is over whether they're going to be witnesses called. There were some reports this morning that some Democratic senators were thinking about a possible deal where we get to call uh, John Bolton and maybe the other side gets to call Hunter Biden. Um, what's going on with that? Yeah, so this initially was a Republican suggestion. Um, it's no surprise that Republicans would say if the Democrats want to call witnesses, Republicans should be able to call witnesses too. Most Democrats have said that Hunter Biden, for example, is not a good witness because he can't speak to the president's actions. You know, yes, he was a member of this board of the Ukrainian gas company Burisma, but that's not directly relevant to the allegations facing the president. So you know, there were some Democrats yesterday who were like, yeah, maybe we could consider it. But um, Chuck Schumer, the Senate minority leader, kind of shot that down today and said that you know, that's not being considered. It doesn't mean it won't happen because, <laughs> uh, you know, d- things could develop. But, you know, if if Democrats want to hear from John Bolton and Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, you know, they're going to have to give something to Republicans in return. And that could be the testimony of, you know, if not Hunter Biden, maybe Joe Biden. You know, it would, I'm sure there would be some conversations with him and his campaign on whether or not he would actually be willing to do that. The, the people who are in play in this, at least according to conventional wisdom, are a handful of Republicans who maybe could vote to, to uh, call some witnesses and, uh, you know, in, in Democrats' wildest dreams might vote to convict the president. Is there any uh, indication that, that any of this has been influencing those key de- uh, Republican uh, senators? It's been interesting to watch them on the floor. And, of course, we're just getting notes from our reporters in the room because there are no TV cameras. It's just the Senate camera focused on the speaker. So we're not getting any, like, C-SPAN cameras on the reactions of the senators. But the four, five, six Republicans who have shown some openness to calling witnesses, you know, Susan Collins of Maine facing tough re-election battle next year, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, also a very independently-minded senator, uh, Mitt Romney of Utah, they've been taking very meticulous notes. So it's been interesting to see kind of the moments at which they look down at their notepad and say, like, okay, this is something that I want to remember, something that I want to jot down. Um, So you can tell that they are engaged. Um, That's different than some of their other Senate colleagues. Um, There's been a lot of kind of going in and out of the chamber, you know, maybe hanging out. I thought they were supposed to stay on their desk with their milk. They are. Exactly. They're they're allowed to have milk or water. Um, So uh, most people are going for water, although a few have... um, have chosen to really? drink milk, um, but um, they're you know spending a lot of time in the you know in the Republican co- cloakroom and the Democratic cloakroom, kind of realizing that there probably won't be any consequences for taking a break every once in a while. So uh, you know it, it it has been interesting to see who's the most engaged with the process and who is kind of writing it off or even in some cases falling asleep. Uh, we just have about a minute left. Um, how about outside the Senate? What what indications are there about how all this is playing in the rest of the country? Yeah, it's hard to tell because you have the president's very passionate supporters who are with him no matter what. You have the president's very passionate opponents who really want this man to be removed by from office by any means possible. And you have a very 
small section of voters in the middle that aren't decided yet, who haven't made up their mind. And that's really kind of the most important audience for this process, because the House impeachment managers have to convince them, not only is the president not fit for office, and if he is not removed by the Senate, he should be voted out, but they also have to defend the House process, because all House Democrats are going to be up for re-election next year, and they want to demonstrate that they've done their duty responsibly, according to the Constitution. That was Anna Edgerton, congressional editor for Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us here on Sound On. Anna, coming up, we're going to talk about the rest of Chief Justice John Roberts' day. He uh, heard arguments, and the rest of the Supreme Court did, in an important religion case. Download the Bloomberg Sound podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by playing the downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You're listening to Sound On. I'm Greg Storr. This is Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Greg Store in for Kevin Cirilli. Even with the impeachment trial going on, Chief Justice John Roberts still had to do his day job at the Supreme Court today. Eight hours after impeachment day one ended, Roberts was on the bench as the court heard arguments in a Montana case that could make it easier to funnel public money to religious schools. The case is about a $150 tax credit that people could get for donating money to an organization that would use the money to provide scholarships for people to attend private schools. With me to talk about the case is Michael Bindis. He's with the Institute for Justice, which represents three mothers who want to use scholarship money to help send their children to a Christian school. And Daniel Mack of the American Civil Liberties Union, he helped file a friend of the court brief on the other side of the case, saying the program should remain invalidated. Uh, thanks to both of you for, for joining me here. You were both in the courtroom today, as was I. Um, Daniel, uh, let me start with you. This is a case where I find it easy to get a little bit turned around uh, because of some procedure, but we'll try to simplify it. Can you just tell us what the Montana Supreme Court said in striking down the program? So the Montana Supreme Court, looking to a provision of its state constitution, a provision that's similar to uh, provisions in three-quarters of the states around the country, that requires the state not to fund directly or indirectly um, religious activity. So the Montana Supreme Court said that this program, they were concerned that it would fund religious activities, religious schooling, and as a result, instead of just saying that the program could stand and only fund non-religious schooling, the state Supreme Court scrapped the entire program. So after that decision, no one in the state, religious schools or non-religious schools, can benefit from this program. Okay, so Michael, given that, that that is the case, the program at this moment does not exist, one of the big questions that came up today from the more liberal justices was, how can it be that this program discriminates on the basis of religion? Neither the, the parents who want to send their kids to religious schools nor the ones who want to send them to non-religious private schools get the money. What, what's your answer to that question? Right. The reason the program was struck down is because of religion. Um, parents... Uh, have been denied scholarships because of religion. They continue to be denied scholarships because of religion. And the fact that the court at the end of the day struck down the entire program uh, 
and, and, and therefore there was kind of collateral damage, uh, you know, uh, other scholarship recipients who, who no longer have access to the program, uh, is beside the point. that The reason the, the court struck down the program was because it included religious options. In fact, the only reason the court struck down the program in its entirety is because the definition of eligible schools included religious and non-religious schools alike, and it determined that, hey, the legislature wanted all schools to be able to participate, we don't think religious schools can participate. Um, therefore, we've got no choice but to strike down the program in its entirety. Um, it's clear that it saw the inclusion of religious options as the problem and that there was no federal constitutional problem in barring religious options in the program. And we believe that there is a big federal problem when you offer a benefit and say you may use it, but you may not use it to attend a religious school. Daniel, in addition to what Mike, Michael said, there's also the history of this provision in the Montana Constitution. Uh, this amendment is something that uh, Michael hasn't used the phrase yet, but but people on his side of the case call it a Blaine Amendment, uh, something that was adopted back in the 19th century with an anti-Catholic bias in mind. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh uh, called it uh, said that these these sorts of amendments are rooted in grotesque religious bigotry against Catholics. Uh, so, what what's the answer to both what what Michael had to say there and and the history of this amendment? Well, the history is an interesting question in this case. First of all, even if you go back to the late nineteenth century, it is far from clear that um, the original provision in the Montana Constitution was born of anti. Catholic bigotry. There was certainly anti-Catholic bigotry um, throughout the country in various um, pockets, but the evidence even back then for Montana is thin at best. But more importantly, this is a provision that was actually adopted in 1972. Um, so it there's no reason to even send it back that far, to look back that far. And in 1972, there's certainly no evidence whatsoever that this was adopted for um, some anti-Catholic reason. Uh, the clear intent at the time in, 19, in the 70s was to preserve funding for public schools and to protect religious freedom by preventing government influence on religious institutions. Michael, help help us understand the implications of this case. One one other issue that came up in the courtroom, asked by both Stephen Breyer and John Roberts, was about public schools. Um, if your side wins this case, uh, what, if anything, does it mean for the ability of a state or local government to, to fund public schools without having some sort of obligation to religious schools as well? This case has nothing to do with public schools. No one has argued that... Um, uh, that if the state funds public schools, it must also fund private schools, or that if the state funds public schools and they're secular, it must also create some kind of religious public school program. Uh, that, that It's all a, a, a diversion. Uh, what this case asks is whether government, if it provides a generally available benefit, like a scholarship in this case, whether it may bar religious options in that program. Uh, it may not. And in fact, the U.S. Supreme Court held two years ago that it may not uh, in a case called Trinity Lutheran uh, versus Comer, in which the uh, state of Missouri offered a playground resurfacing uh, program grant, uh, provided grants to schools and other nonprofits to um, resurface their playgrounds with a rubberized material. Uh, Trinity Lutheran Church, which ran a preschool, applied to participate in this program. Missouri said, nope, can't do it. 
the reason Missouri cited uh, for denying the church the ability to participate is the same type of state constitutional provision relied on Montana in this case. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, you may not single out and exclude this church, this church-run preschool, simply because it's religious. And even though you have this state constitutional provision that says you may do that, that provision doesn't trump the federal constitution. The federal constitution is supreme, and the federal constitution prohibits government from barring recipients of a benefit uh, based on their religious status. Daniel, I've forgotten whether the ACLU filed a brief in the in the uh, Missouri case, the 2017 case. I suspect you did, and I suspect you're on the losing side. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, regardless, um, doesn't that ruling put you in a pretty bad spot right now? Is there any difference between this program uh, and the the Missouri program that, that the Supreme Court said had to be open to religious uh, preschools? There's a huge difference between the two cases, and in fact, <laughs> Justice Kagan who was in the majority in the recent case, pointed out that there's a big difference, and it is this. In the more recent case, the Trinity Lutheran case, the Supreme Court said that the government may not deny funds based solely on a recipient's religious status. Okay, that's the key. Um, and it expressly said we are not addressing, we the court, religious uses of funding. States can still restrict funding of religious uses, as the Supreme Court said in a 7-2 majority uh, uh, opinion uh, a few years earlier, written by Chief Justice Rehnquist, who was certainly no fan of church-state separation, that states may restrict funding of religious uses. And here, there's no question that Montana's tax credit program would fund religious activities, trading, instruction and indoctrination on a daily basis. We're going to have to leave it there. That was Daniel Mack of the American Civil Liberties Union. I want to thank him and also Michael Bindis of the Institute for Justice talking about the Supreme Court today that could have a very big impact on religious rights um, and potential uh, funding of religious schools. That's it for Sound On. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Greg Storr. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.